Hello, and welcome to Gaspar's History Podcast. This is Gaspar, and I'm continuing the Meat Hound series with Episode 7, Groundhog Day. Our series continues the adventures of Steel in the 423rd Bomb Squadron, which is part of the 306th Bomb Group in Thurley, England. Today's story takes place the first week of February 1943, a regular Groundhog Day adventure where these flyers and crews found themselves living the same day over and over again. Our story wraps up with a Memorial Day tribute since I finished writing it on Memorial Day. With that, let's jump into the story. It was a dark and stormy night. I always wanted to say that. The Wehrmacht captain sat next to the disheveled stranger on the surprisingly crowded train. He chose the seat because the stranger was sleeping and the last thing the German officer wanted was to hold a conversation, especially with a French commoner. The old French train had seen plenty of use, but it was a quality steam engine and today it was running from Paris to the south of France. Damn bad luck, 2nd Lieutenant William Geis was thinking to himself as he saw the captain sit next to our old friend Sergeant Erwin Wisenbach. Geis was pondering what is the action if Wisenbach is discovered. It's probably a full-out assault because the Krauts will do a thorough search of the train, and even though our forgeries are good, it's just too risky. You're probably asking yourself, who is 2nd Lieutenant Geis, and where did he come from, and how did he get on a train with Erwin Wisenbach? 2nd Lieutenant Geis was the navigator on the Snoozy 2, and he went out the nose hatch of the doomed aircraft, also at a very low level, and he too was able to evade capture. The French resistance collected Geis and Wisenbach, and after vetting and a thorough interrogation, they started to move them towards Spain. The airmen had clothes, identification, and papers. Now they were on a train with legit tickets and a legit German officer sitting next to Irwin. Second Lieutenant Geis, a native of Yoakum, Texas, played the scenarios through his head. But thankfully, there'd be no incident today, and the German officer left after a while, and the two airmen continued their journey south without further incident. It was a couple of days past the first trip to Germany, and the weather continued to be quite miserable. The cold was insatiable. So one was not going to get on a bike and head for the pub in Thurley, that's for sure. Steele was tucked in his Nissen hut, quite content, as the boys were joking, gambling, and talking about how bad the weather was, which was preventing them from chasing skirts in the small English town. Steele finished up a letter to his girlfriend, B back in Frostproof, Florida. The only chaps that knew where Frostproof, Florida was were the ones that had taken their bomb training in Avon Park, and that still wasn't a guarantee that they knew where Frostproof was. His letter was quite vanilla, since the censors redacted just about everything anyway. He was safe, it was bitter cold, the boys are good, but he's losing friends, like Gardner Reynolds, who was his bombardier and who he had told her about, especially after their training missions. He wrapped up hoping this bloody war would be over soon and how it would be nice to get back home. What was all the commotion outside? When you're in the middle of a war, a lot of commotion makes you nervous. Who's doing all the yelling? It's freezing outside, so something is going on. 
Pretty soon, Lieutenant Uncle Bill Warner walked in the barracks and said Lieutenant John McKee from the Clay Pigeons was back in camp. How can that be, the crews said to each other. Lieutenant McKee and the Rose O'Day were shot down on December 20th, 1942, on the mission to Romilly Susain, which is our Deja Vu podcast. The Rose O'Day is also the aircraft that Darwin Wisenbach was in, but Darwin, unlike his brother Irwin, had been captured and was sent to a POW camp. Lieutenant McGee parachuted out and upon landing was met in a plow field by French women, 15 of them, and he was then helped by French civilians and the French resistance. He made his way west and back to England in nearly world record time, just over a month. The Underground Railroad was quite secretive, so stories are subdued but Lieutenant McKee was able to find his way into a French resistance cell. They moved him by train. Then they secured his way over the channel to England. The bomb group surgeon, Schuller, commented that seeing Lieutenant McKee lifted the spirits of the 367th and did wonders for their morale. It did not hurt that Lieutenant McKee was on the soapbox telling the story how one of the bombs dropped on Romilly Hussein that day actually hit a Luftwaffe barracks and killed 200 men. Hearsay or not, it was a story that would spread like wildfire, and sometimes all you need is a good story to make you feel better. We go from a dark and stormy night to a groundhog day where that fat rat definitely saw a shadow, because man, it was cold that morning, too cold. In fact, we are about to find out just how cold it was. Steele and the boys had a hard time getting out of bed this morning. Let's be honest, getting up at 3 a.m. is hard for anyone, unless, of course, you're getting up at 3 a.m. to jump into an orange Volkswagen bug, hit the Dunkin' Donuts as you head for the Ocala hunt camp to score some squirrel. But I suppose that's a story for another day. And their only solace this morning was they welcomed their flying gear, even if it did take them nearly an hour to get it all on. They climbed into their jeeps and headed over to breakfast. It was 0430 and time for some hot coffee in those Vita Field mugs. Sergeant Piotrowski commented how his mom was just now going to bed. And his buddy, co-gunner William Hull, he added in, yeah, in California, they're eating dinner. I bet it's going to be St. Nazaire again. And we're going to get briefed on what direction to go, how high to fly, and what Jerry will be wearing. Then they're going to tell us when to drop those big beautiful eggs. Everything. Speaking of eggs, as the crew could hear those right cyclone engines winding up over on the airfield, I'd give a month's pay to that farmer for two real fresh eggs, Hull commented. Steele and the boys ate, and after breakfast, the mission briefing started at 0530. And then, as the big blue canvas tarp fell to the ground, Colonel Armstrong announced another trip to Germany. The colonel was once again short and pointed. He meant business, but today he would not be leading the group. Once again, there was elation in the room, and then there was that long, pondering silence of what that really meant. But then that was followed by comments on how the Luftwaffe pilots last week were not really very good. We got this. The Grim Reapers, the 423rd, 
they would be flying six aircraft today, and Major Wilson would have the 306th Bomb Group lead. The 423rd would have two full elements flying. And the target? Well, that was the marshalling yards at Ham, Germany. What do you think a marshalling yard is? My first thought was a place where you listen to the Marshall Tucker Band, but can't you see? I was wrong. It's a railroad center where supplies are brought in from everywhere and then loaded to trains and sent to their destinations. Lieutenant Ralph Jones commented to Steele, Well, it looks like we get a little change from targeting submarine operations. No saint in his air. Steele nodded with affirmation and thought to himself, I hope Ham is not expecting us. The crews were briefed on how the marshalling yards at Ham were some of the largest operations in all of Europe, so she was a prize indeed. Colonel Armstrong also added that the RAF had been having a go at Ham, so I think we should show them what we got, which drew a cheer from the crews. With that, and a godspeed, the briefing was over. Now get to it. It was exciting to have a full complement of the 423rd Squadron bombing Germany. The Grim Reapers would have one-third of the 306 Bomb Group aircraft in the mission today. Jones and Steele would be flying their old friend Unbearable, Yuri and Hopkins would be flying Old Faithful, and the rest were in no-name deaf beauties. Major Wilson and Captain Salata would be flying 42-57-20. Uncle Bill Warner and Arnold Carlson, they would be flying their usual 57-17. And Captain Smith and Lieutenant Johnson, they were in 24-460. And lastly, Lieutenants George and Mallon, with our replacement bombardier friend Meade Warner, they were in 5171. The crews headed for their aircrafts and the takeoff was scheduled for 0830, but they would actually get in the air ahead of schedule and meet up at the first rendezvous point, which was 3,000 feet above Thurley. Steele and Jones were still getting comfortable with each other and learning what each other liked and disliked. As usual, Steele was flying with some new faces and they were all in the front of the aircraft today. Second Lieutenants Otis Burt Tillery and Hugh Phelan were part of the crew today. Second Lieutenant Tillery was from Sweet Home, Alabama, and Hugh Phelan was from Illinois. They had both come in on a truck January 15th and then were immediately sent to Bovingdon Airfield for additional training. And now that they were back, well, here they are flying for the first time with Jones, Steele, and the Unbearable and her crew. Replacements, just like Steele and his crew. Hopefully they can keep it together because you really didn't know how one will act until they started getting shot at. Our friend, Leon Bamforth, he was in the engineer spot and he and the pilots were going to have their hands full with the engines today while Bamford had the extra issue of getting the guns to work. Raymond Stymax from the Bronx, New York, well, he was on the radio. Can you imagine what those conversations were like? William Hull from California, he was in the ball turret position on this chilled day, so he should get a medal just for climbing in that thing. Walter Piotrowski from New Hampshire, he was on the right waist gun. And his good friend James Smoot, he was beside him on the left waist gun. And lastly, Clarence Durham, who we met on a previous mission, he was in the tail gun position. 
The oxygen and electric suits were in order, and when they got over the channel, Jones asked the crew to check the guns. From his co-pilot's seat and in full gear, Steele could always hear the distinctive rat-a-tat-tat of the Browning machine gun. And when that is your defense, it's a welcome sound, even though you would always prefer silence, because that meant you were being ignored. The 423rd Squadron formed up as follows. Major Wilson was in the lead at base altitude, Captain Smith was in the number two, and Lieutenant Urey in Old Faithful, he was in the number three slot. The second element was being led by Lieutenant Warner, in the number two was Lieutenant George, and in the number three slot was Jones and Steele in the unbearable. Steele was getting used to looking out to his right and seeing Lieutenant George, and he always had a comfort with Lieutenant Warner and Arnold Carlson in front of them. It was a clean takeoff and form up, but it was cold, and as they got to altitude, it was minus 42 degrees Celsius. Steele could feel the cold. It was always cold, and frostbite was always a problem. But when it was this cold, well, those few extra degrees made a difference. It was not long at altitude before the aircraft in the bomb groups started to fall away and head back to England. It was the usual, but just with a little more frequency. Superchargers were failing, turrets were freezing, electric suits failed, gyro compasses were going down, and when they got back home, the mechanics, like Sergeant George Bright, they were going to have to figure out, was there something wrong with the equipment? Or was it just too cold? The unbearable was running well. Remember, she was not without her problems in the past, but today Steele did not have any anomalies to report. Jones was trying his best to keep her in formation, paranoid of an attack and not wanting to get chewed on again like the rest of the squadron for having a loose formation. Major Wilson kept the 306 in good order, but let's face it, the Major's definition of good order at 20,000 feet is different than those starred bird jockeys' opinion 300 miles away. As the bomb groups got within 30 miles of the Dutch coast, Staff Sergeant Stymax heard the message over the wireless, then called out in that thick Bronx accent, Abort! Abort! Captain, we're turning back. Reports are of heavy 1010 cloud cover over the targets, and the cold is wrecking havoc on the aircraft. Roger that, Captain Jones replied. Jones announced to the crew, okay boys, the mission is scrubbed and we are headed back home. Keep an eye out for Jerry as soon as we make the bank. The crew was on high alert, but the good news was there was no enemy plane spotted and the unbearable was running smoothly. However, no enemy aircraft spotted was really a false sense of security on a cloudy day like today. Remember how the Sons of Fury got jumped over the channel? The mission was in fact officially called off, and the group started to change course and head back home. The crews commented it felt like they had just got up, and now they were having to head back down? The bomb group made a wide left bank. Jones continued to remind the crew to keep an eye out for enemy aircraft, since a wolf could pounce at any second. Jones was a little nervous, as he should be, and he was trying to keep the unbearable in close, and today, the wheel was tight, and she was responding. Steele was pleased with her performance. Too bad we weren't going to make the full trip, he thought. 
The fact is, the cold air made for a smoother flight, so long as nothing else broke. The gunners complained a bit. We did all this for nothing? They were in their 20s, and they did have some of the best machine guns ever made. Listen, no one likes to get up early, take an hour to put on cold-weather flying gear, especially when there was no reward at the end. It was frustrating for these young men, but one quickly realized if that was the only thing that you had to complain about, well, was it really that bad? It had been an early morning, then a briefing, then prepping the plane, then getting into the plane, loading the plane, taking off, rendezvous points, tight formation flying, all in cold weather. And what was the reward? Well, today, the only reward was you didn't have to fight. But that also meant that your built-up nerves got no release. Now the crews would head back to Thurley and get the planes ready to go tomorrow, and we will do it all over again. Welcome to the world of the World War II flyer. This is what it was like, whether the mission was a success or not. This was their job, and this was their routine. They were at war, and most things normal had vanished, just like the fresh eggs. They would do this again tomorrow. They would get up early, if they even got to bed at all. The mechanics would be up all night repairing engines and aircraft. The mechanics could change an engine overnight. They would check the oxygen lines. They would make sure there was no cuts or crimps. Let's not forget about the armorers. I mean, seriously, whoever talks about the armorers, yet their job was critical to the success of the mission and ultimately to the lives of the crews. So yes, let's talk about the armorers. They too were pulling all-nighters, switching out machine guns, oiling guns. Not too much, they will freeze. Make sure the link shoots are clear. Remember, Sergeant Bevan wants a tighter tracer grouping in his belts, so let's make that happen, Private. Where is ordnance with those bombs? It's getting late, and we don't have all morning. You see, there's a lot that has to happen to get the planes ready to fight a combat mission. And the quality of the equipment and the aircraft these flyers were in provided a balance between life and death. Remember, the elements could kill them faster than the enemy. So in addition to the strain and stress of flying and combat was the added stress and the long hours with little sleep to ensure that the unbearable or sweet pea was in top condition so they may handle the strains of tight formation flying, flak, and 20 millimeter cannon fire. Dr. Thurman Schuller, the 28-year-old 306 Bomb Group surgeon, continued to be worried about these young soldiers and the constant stress that they were under. So he wrote a letter to the 8th Air Force Bomber Command outlining his concerns and recommending that the general staff officially adopt a 20-mission rotation for the pilots and crews. The 8th Air Force leadership had that under advisement, but no official decision had been made. But as we heard in an earlier episode, we are assuming that a tour of duty mission count would be 25, which for these first set of crews who started flying in 1942 is where the mission count would ultimately land. Let me be specific. Dr. Thurman Schuller does get the historic credit for the idea and its adoption. Dr. Major Schuller 
was from Ozark, Arkansas, where he was born on a farm and was the sixth and youngest son. He was a University of Arkansas School of Medicine graduate of 1939, and then after that he joined the U.S. Army Medical Reserve Corps, which is where he was stationed when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. It was not long after that that fate dealt him to the U.S. Army Corps and the 306 Bomb Group. This is one of those instances where the right person was in the right place at the right time. Is this fate, coincidence, or a higher power guiding? What would have been the outcome of the U.S. Army Corps and her crews if Dr. Schuller were not there to constantly point out and illustrate combat fatigue and the impact it was having on these young men and women? What would have been the result if no doctor were pushing for a reasonable course of action, breaks between missions, or extended furloughs? Think of it this way. Even after some of Dr. Schuller's prescriptions were recognized and adopted by the 8th Air Force Command, the flyers who we are talking about all came back home scarred, with some scarred more than others, barely able to function in a normal society. So what would it have been like for this generation of flyers without the prescriptions of Dr. Thurman Schuller? As I write this episode on Memorial Day 2023, which is 80 years after Memorial Day 1943, I believe it to be important to share with you what these young men were thinking and who they were thinking about on that day in 1943. So even though we are in the first week of February 1943, we will jump to the end of May for a little memorial and remembrance. The chaplain, Roy McLeod, held a service on this day where Colonel Putnam said a few words. There was much pomp and circumstance with an overly overt patriotic theme that closed the services with taps, but no mention of the pipes, which is actually pretty hard to believe. Captain Brady and his crew, who we lost in the mission, I Thought You Were Dead, where Garner Reynolds was the lone survivor, but remember, that will not be known to the 423rd Squadron for some 45 years later. Well, Captain Brady was remembered as having a passion for flying and was a, gru- and was a good crew commander. And on the lighter side, the crews could remember that he made several attempts at smoking and drinking so he could be, quote, one of the fellows, but his actual ability to smoke and drink were far less successful than his desire to smoke and drink. Captain Johnson was remembered as the quiet, reserved, superb flying pilot, but this memory pained Dr. Schuller because he regretted not benching Lieutenant Spaulding due to his nerves, and it was in that mission in mid-January to Lille where Lieutenant Spaulding collided with Captain Johnson, and they were both killed. Lieutenant Spaulding had been married just before they left the United States, and now this quiet and bashful young man left a widow back home. And you can see how even for Dr. Schuller, the struggles of war are real. The good doctor remembered Captain Olson, who went down on the first mission, and how he told the doctor that he did not think he would be coming home that day. He remembered Cranmer, 
Brustain and Harris, who went down in the channel, and how Harris was posthumously awarded the Distinguished Service Cross for trying to save the crew. There was Lieutenant Brandon, who we lost in an old friend episode, who was on his first mission with his new crew, and they were lost somewhere in the Atlantic, never to be found. It was such a waste because Lieutenant Brandon was a football hero. And poor Lieutenant Lemuel Smith, who was lost with Brandon, well, he just wanted the war to end so he could get back to his girl in Alabama. Also lost with Brandon was the big, tall, lanky Texan pilot, Lieutenant James Jones, who was the doctor's friend and who was actually flying that day as a replacement waste gunner. And then there was Conrad Jefferson Farr, Deja Vu Mission, killed over his bomb sites, and who was once accused of espionage for the Germans while back in the United States. I guess he showed his loyalty with his life, and every Christmas thereafter was like deja vu for his beloved mother and father. I wonder what their memorial services were like in 1943. Sadly, there are many others that we have not gotten to in our story, since we are flying the first week of February 1943, so I'm not going to spoil the future stories. Let's end this podcast with the fitting remembrances of Memorial Day 1943 and our ongoing pursuit 80 years later to never forget. Let us remember the sight of these young men that we never got to see and how the doctor called out the sides of them that humanized them and the personal side of them that he remembered, and that they were his friends, and that they were gone. For Steele and his crew on that Memorial Day in 1943, it would be particularly tough. The next mission we will be flying is February 4th, 1943, and it will be another attempt to bomb Germany. Until next time, just think of the things you may find while you're looking for something else. I think I may have found a nugget, but the U.S. Air Force Historical Society has to clear it through classified documents before I can receive it. And Julie, I still have not found those photos. Gaspar, out. <laughs>